Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right. Hello, my friends, and thanks for listening in today. So I know I say this a lot, but we truly have an awesome episode ahead for you for two reasons. One being that we're talking about some clinical pearls for managing hydradenitis superativa, and two being that we have one of the HS thought leaders joining us today to talk about it, Dr. Jocelyn Kirby. Dr. Kirby is currently the Vice Chair of Education and the Program Director for the Department of Dermatology at Penn State. She received her MD from the University of Virginia prior to completing her dermatology residency at the University of Pennsylvania, where she served as the Chief Resident. She has published an impressive amount of research, especially related to HS, in all of the major dermatology journals. Recently, she co-authored the North American Clinical Management Guidelines on Hydradenitis Superativa in the July 2019 edition of the JAD, and we're super grateful she's joining us today to talk about HS. So before we talk HS with Dr. Kirby, I want to mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. All right, so welcome, Dr. Kirby. In the last episode, we gave our listeners some clinical background in HS and kind of laid out the menu of treatment options. So um, what I thought we'd do today is get your clinical expertise on a practical approach to a couple of common HS encounters. So the first being how you approach new patients that come to your office with HS, and then number two being how you approach the office visits for established patients that you know pretty well. Um, but before we do this, I think one of the biggest things I wanted to accomplish with this interview is just to get our listeners feeling excited and feeling confident when they approach these visits. Because uh, I've heard your lectures a couple of times on HS at ODAC, and I feel like I always walk away feeling really pumped up about managing my HS patients. So my first question for you is how you became so passionate about researching and treating hydradenitis superativa. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate that. Uh, and then I want to say I think that mm, I feel more comfortable walking into any room if I feel like I can at least come up with a plan, that I, I have one or two steps that I know I'll be able to rely on and use. And I think we have all those tools when we walk into a room and someone has scarring acne, we have an algorithm in mind. If somebody has psoriasis, we already have a sense of what we're going to do. And I just don't know that I had that when I was first starting with HS. And now that I have a little bit more of a sense of, I know that I can go into this room and handle it, I can come up with a practical next step, it's a lot more enjoyable. So I think to your point about why HS for me, I think it just, it, it's so meaningful because it, this is a group of people who have been misinformed They've been told they have a condition because they are maybe overweight or they don't wash well enough. And a part of me just feels so righteously angry that there's this misinformation out there that I want to try and correct it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one piece. And I think uh, a real empathy for a disease that while it affects 
unseen parts of our body, and I'm going to put that in finger quotes, unseen, that it is still incredibly meaningful and really impacts interpersonal relationships. Because while you can't see HS, you might be able to smell it. Hmm. And even if you can't see it in our business clothes, we maybe wouldn't wear tank tops if we had HS. We wouldn't maybe wear shorts or bathing suits. And so now very important and large parts of our activities and lives are impacted by a disease that again in finger quotes was invisible. So that's why I did HS. What am I thinking about when I walk into the room? So new patient or existing patient, the first thing I try and do is make room for the patient. How are things going? Tell me what you know about your HS. Tell me what's been going on. And I think for a lot of people with HS, they feel like they haven't been listened to before. They've only been talked at. Um, and I think that now they're starting to realize that as uh, medical professionals, we are starting to listen and they want to re-engage with us. So that is really exciting. So giving them space, letting them talk about what they're noticing and during that time, I sometimes get a sense of just how impactful the disease is on their life, their activities, their sexual relationships. They're not willing to sit at the table next to a coworker because they're worried their coworker can smell them. Not being able to pick up their kids or sleep. Uh, feeling depressed, feeling anxious because they don't know when that next roller coaster of a flare-up is going to happen. And how they may have been misinformed so I can tell them this is a disease your body made because your immune system is too good. And so I think that explanation is really important because so many people with HS develop lesions that look like infection and they are told or jump to the conclusion that their immune systems must be defective or underactive. And there's something just very hurtful about feeling like part of you doesn't work or isn't as good as other people. And so my hope is that if I can explain to them that their immune system is so good that it's reacting to things that it shouldn't react to, then maybe that's a little less hurtful and it opens the door to be able to talk about drugs that maybe do harness and maybe do lower that overactivity of the immune system like adalimumab or infliximab or other things. Yeah. And we, uh, and I think that's really important too to take the time to explain to patients why they're getting the condition that they have for anything in dermatology, but for especially HS, because like you said, there's a lot of, in, of misinformation out there. So I know you mentioned you explained that their immune system is too good, but how do you even explain when patients say, like, is this an infection? What's kind of your knee jerk response to that? So I think that our rules of thumb that we maybe have used for other conditions like acne, you have acne because of your immune system, hormones play a role in that, and yes, some bacteria do contribute. That is basically all we know and have confirmed in terms of the pathogenesis of HS. Your immune system's too good, your hormones probably play a role, and yes, there are bacteria that take advantage but are not the only reason that you have HS. So antibiotics won't cure you, and a lot of people have tried them, have done better on them, then recurred, same thing, tried them, recurred, 
And so they can understand, oh, that's why I didn't get better with the 17 courses of antibiotics I've been given. Exactly. And I think you probably have that light bulb moment where it makes more sense to the patient. So um, like we were saying, uh, whether it's a new patient, established patient, maybe even focusing more on the new ones. So, you know, you give them their space to kind of give their story, how this is impacting them, maybe get a sense of what treatments they've used in the past. Are there any other essential parts to your history or to your physical exam in particular that you always address on that first visit? Yeah, great question, Logan. So I think the other two things that I'm thinking about are balancing the impact of the disease and the severity that I'm seeing on exam. And so I think going back to the rules of thumb that we are comfortable with in acne, if we walk in the room and we see scarring lesions, we reach for isotretinoin, or at least I do. I think what we can learn with HS is the same thing. If you are seeing scarring lesions, it's time to pick a disease-modifying treatment. If you're seeing tunnels, it is time to start to get this deeper inflammatory disease under control and maybe broach the topic of procedural interventions combined with medical interventions. I think for people who... Going back to the acne example, we walk in the room and we weren't thinking isotretinoin when we first walked in, but then as their story unfolds, they've been on antibiotics, they recurred. They were on antibiotics, they recurred. They've done all the right things, but just the acne won't stay away. I think for people with HS who maybe don't have a ton of scarring and maybe don't even have 20 lesions, If they have five, if they have three, and you just can't keep them comfortable if their activities are really impacted, just like that acne patient, they've now proved their recalcitrant. It's proven that it's impacting their quality of life. We need to escalate therapy for that reason. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Even I'm sure, you know, I've seen patients with erythrodermic psoriasis and they just want a cream and to get out of the office. And I've seen patients that have, you know, a little patch on their knee and they're asking about biologics. So it really does depend on, you know, how it's impacting the patient, especially too. Um, but you said, you know, when you see that scarring, um, you know, that deeper inflammation, you, you think about disease modifying treatments. Uh, so what are some that you keep kind of at the top of your toolkit, so to speak? So I am moving more and more away from oral antibiotics. I use them for people who have said, I do great if I take a, you know, 14-day course of doxycycline or uh, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. There are those people, um, but there's plenty of people who antibiotics don't do anything for them. And so I think courses of prednisone or intralesional kenalog Uh, can also address those flare-ups. So I guess I should just preface this this with my treatment. I'm thinking about flare treatment and maintenance treatment, which is a little different than maybe how we think about acne or psoriasis, where we're just thinking maintenance therapy. So I help my HS patients hopefully hear the message, I want to put you on something more days than not to help suppress the HS. But it is a roller coaster. And if you have a flare, I want you to have something that you can use. And if for a manageable number of lesions, that manageable is different for every patient. I would say six and less injections is you know reasonable for a lot of patients. 
So injections in the office, we use topical resorcinol, which is compounded by a pharmacy. It's uh, 15%. And then sometimes we use courses of systemic, either antibiotics or prednisone uh, for a couple weeks at a time. The maintenance therapy, what I like to reach for instead of antibiotics is bronolactone for women. So especially for uh, women who don't have more advanced disease, if they have stage one or stage two, meaning Hurley stage one or Hurley stage two, I really like spironolactone, usually about 100 milligrams a day. Um, I don't require them to take birth control at the same time. I just warn them they might notice breast tenderness or spotting between their periods. For uh, women who maybe have a little more inflammation or aren't um, really amenable to spironolactone, I do next grab for a biologic. We know HS is primarily an immune system disease, so I'm not going to fool around trying six more courses of different antibiotics. I tend to reach for adalimumab or infliximab as my first-line option. Nice. And if you get any pushback from insurance companies on those biologics, uh, do you have any pearls for how you send an appeal or do you send uh, the guideline paper or any other literature back to the insurance company? Oh, Logan, that is such <laughs> an excellent question. So appeal letters, nobody loves them. Uh, at least for adalimumab, the American Academy of Dermatology does have a templated let me rephrase that, templated letter, um, because it is FDA approved. For infliximab or any other agent that is not FDA approved, I start my letters describing how severe the disease is, what treatments they have been on, what the outcome was, usually it didn't work or made it worse, had an allergic reaction, some other contraindication. So again, giving them evidence that you've ticked through prior things and there was a good reason not to do that again. I think the second thing is I try and overwhelm them with data. So I <laughs> send them as many peer-reviewed articles as I possibly can. Uh, we have a PDF file and we just send them all the PDFs. I'm trying to save trees now, but there is something to just printing off 60 pages of literature and faxing it over that just feels so righteous. Yeah, um, that's awesome. But we're trying to avoid it. And I don't hold back. I want the insurance company to know that if they don't give me this medicine, that there is a higher, like, higher likelihood that the patient may be hospitalized, they see dollar signs, yeah. may require more extensive surgery, again, dollar signs, or more may develop squamous cell carcinoma, which is an aggressive and potentially lethal cancer, they see lawyers. So I think don't hold back on what some of those possibilities are if the insurance company doesn't give you the medication. Yeah. Um, and I think if it's not too much trouble, I'd love to get that list of papers and maybe I can put it a little bibliography in the show notes for people to search those out and keep them in their own folders when they are sending appeals, because I think that's super helpful. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned patients getting hospitalized and the dollar signs that can show up. You recently wrote a paper um, about how these HS patients are more likely to utilize care in the ED. I was just wondering if you could comment on some of those findings. Yeah, I, I'm, the findings are exactly what you said, so thanks for looking, which is people with HS compared to people with psoriasis, another chronic inflammatory skin condition, 
and compared to people without either HS or psoriasis, our patients with HS are showing up in emergency departments for more visits, and they're being hospitalized at a higher frequency. And that project, I think the more important point was, that was a project that just came out of nowhere for me. So I, I think for a lot of us, research might feel unattainable. It's like this big thing that you know, only certain people do, and that's absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. There are questions and situations that we are all in every day that we can question and we can look at this. Uh, and the question for me was, what's happening to my patients or all of these patients, because it was before I had a specialty clinic in HS, where do they go when their dermatologist isn't open? What if they don't even have a dermatologist and they have these flares that come out of nowhere? And it, the answer came from this data showing that they're showing up in urgent cares and emergency rooms. And those visits are just a lot more expensive than even a specialist copay. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, they, there's a lot of providers, I feel like, that see these HS patients before us. Uh, but once they are set into your clinic and they're established with you, they know Dr. Kirby, um, you know, getting to the established visits, because I know HS has a lot of different comorbidities that we talked about in the last episode. I just wanted to see what pearls you had for when you approach the discussion on smoking cessation and, you know, weight loss intervention. I'm sure it's not at the very first visit, but I just wanted to see what pearls you had on that. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I don't tend to roll into that first visit and say, you know what, you should also really stop smoking and uh, lose some weight. I'm going to give you these prescriptions and I'm going to send you to the surgeon. Because a lot of people, myself included, if I am stressed or hurting, I reach for something comforting that I put in my mouth. So I don't think I'm the only person that does that. And the idea of smoking, I think it's important to realize there's really no excellent data to prove that smoking causes HS. So we have this chicken or the egg phenomenon where there's a bunch of controversy in the literature showing that smoking doesn't always precede HS, that more smoking doesn't always worsen HS, and that smoking cessation doesn't always remove activity. Mm -hmm. So the recommendations in the North American guidelines for HS for both weight and smoking, I think, take a very practical approach. Mm -hmm. My practical approach is I don't mention it at the first visit unless people ask mm -hmm. or unless there was something in their opening story that said they sort of want to have that conversation. Yeah. At subsequent visits, I'll talk to them and say, you know, I really want to maximize your whole health, not just your skin. So I, number one, it would help me a lot for you to have a primary care doctor. Because personally, I don't really know what interventions we can help support a person through smoking cessation. I don't prescribe the drugs. And there may be things that insurance can help us with. I think primary care is a lot more knowledgeable and are experts on those things. And also with weight loss, there are now more programs available through insurance that support people through that effort. And it is a, a longer sort of longitudinal chronic effort. So me just saying it once is never, I think, going to achieve anything. So have a primary care, introduce it as an, really our goal to maximize their whole health 
Mm-hmm. But I think be sensitive to how it can be felt by the person when you say something like, oh, this would be a lot better if you just stopped smoking and lost weight. Because yep. you need to realize, not not you, Logan, personally, I <laughs> know you know this, but uh, to realize that that's easy to say and hard to do. And the data really doesn't back us up at this point. Yeah. And uh, I, I think and even when I approach my visits with my HS patients, I do feel like there's a lot of times where they aren't established with a PCP. So a lot of times we are urging them to go and uh, find somebody that they really like and they can talk to because there are so many other things going on with HS. And like you said, they can help with smoking cessation, um, you know, weight loss, those types of things, too. Um, and I feel like I also have a lot of patients ask, you know, how diet can play a role. And you recently published a paper that also looked at this and meant, you know, found that a lot of patients do dietary avoidance of various things, whether it's gluten or sugars. So I just wanted to see your thoughts on the findings of that study and how you approach the question of how does diet relate to my HS. So... We did that study because I really was quite curious about how many patients were trying this. And a lot of patients try diet. Uh, Vivian, she actually just published an even more recent uh, survey of patients asking them if they had tried diet. And I want to say the number off the top of my head was over 50%. So I think it was the majority. And a lot of this information has really come from anecdotal uh, reports rather than stronger, uh, you know, dietary elimination type studies. So we have a handout that I give to all of our patients who have HS. It's not just in our HS clinic, but it's in every single exam room. And it has the Mediterranean diet on there. So very similar to the smoking cessation and diet uh, or sorry, the smoking cessation and weight loss is these are easy to say, hard to do, and we don't have a lot of data. Dietary changes, easy to say, we don't have a lot of data on which diet is better. So I can at least say the Mediterranean diet has been shown to support heart health and your overall general health. So we have information on the handout about how to do the Mediterranean diet if it's something that they want to pursue. But I've had patients who lost 50 pounds and have a lot less activity. I have patients who tried eliminating various different things and had mild success and some who saw none or got worse. So it's very hard to have confidence when we have that conversation about particular food triggers or what kind of success someone will have. So I'm just cautious about it. I don't shut the door on it. Mm -hmm. I just say, I can't really tell you which foods might be triggers, but I can tell you which diets might help your general health. Yeah. And I think even patients get a sense of whether you've even looked it up or, you know, read the literature through to see the role of diet and these other things too. Because I, even outside of HS, I, a lot of patients will turn to Facebook and social media to see what other people are using for treatment or, you know, what's triggering their HS. Is it diet? Um, so I just wanted to see if you could comment on um, patients' uh, utilization of support groups online like that and uh, what sort of things they tell you in the office about them. Uh, I think that's a really important question because I think as providers, we need to know that if we don't engage our patients in some of these questions and conversations they have, 
they want the information, they will go to the web and find the information. And you don't know the strength of evidence that somebody is going to give them. Um, I've had people come to our support group and say they have tried everything from emu oil to manuka honey to anything that somebody on another group said would work mm -hmm. from different soaps to leave-on products to herbal supplements. So I think that the support groups have grown because people weren't given information. They, yep. they were given misinformation or they felt hurt by the information they were given and it wasn't working. And so I think um, some of the studies that we have seen from complementary or alternative medications, people are reaching for those, number one, because they're not controlled. That's totally understandable. Yeah. But number two, they're turning to them because they're fed up with the experience that they've had in regular doctor's offices, to use finger quotes again. <laughs> so I think to hear people out, um, to read about what some of these interventions might be able to do, and if we're able to incorporate some of what a patient is saying, for example, some people ask about acupuncture for pain control. Mm -hmm. You know what? There's some reasonable data about acupuncture for pain control. Um, so I'm not going to shut them down on that if it's something that they want to do in addition to hopefully they're hearing me when I say I have data to show, I have studies to show, I have information to show that your HS is caused by your immune system. And I'm hoping that one of these medicines is aligned with your interests. Um, so trying to take a little bit of what they're giving me with a little bit of what I'm trying to give them. Yep, exactly. It's uh, hearing each other out, essentially. Yeah. Um, so yeah. then when patients bring up some of these things, where do you like to direct them for the best information? Like I know hsfoundation.org is a really good one that I recommend. I just wanted to see if you had any others. Some of the biggest groups, uh, Hope for HS, I think is a really great resource just for connecting patients with patients. Mm -hmm. There's something really important about having someone with HS hear someone else who's had the same experience because so many people with HS feel like they are the only person to have this disease and to have these frustrating life experiences. And so to feel validated is really something that comes out of some of these online interactions, whether it's HS Warriors or Hope for HS. There are a number of really reputable groups and some that are you know, not as reputable or as positive. Um, many of the groups that are well done um, are private. And so you have to ask for inclusion. So that way you don't have a negative experience from somebody who broke into the group. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, that happens on some of them. Um, so, okay, I have a couple more questions before we wrap up, and they're both related to treating the more severely affected patients. I was wondering if I could have you comment on your experience with the use of ertapenem for patients when they really need it, and also if you had any good resources for uh, if someone wanted to try some of the surgical de-roofing techniques and such for their HS patients. Sure. So ertapenem is a very broad spectrum IV only antibiotic. It's in the carbapenem family. It kills gram positives, gram negatives, and anaerobes. And some of the studies that have investigated the bacteria that seem to colonize some of the HS lesions 
point to a, a pretty broad number of anaerobic bacteria that exacerbate the lesions. So erdipenem seems, though, to have some amount of magic related to it. Because even when we put people on combinations of oral antibiotics that recapitulate the entire spectrum of erdipenem, I've given erdipenem to probably a dozen people and every single time it's jaw dropping. Um, really? They get an infusion every day through a peripheral line, pick line for six weeks and it's incredible. So I think we are quite curious to know, is it just tissue penetration because it's IV mm -hmm. or is there another mechanism by which this drug works and where else can we find that? Because to leave pick lines in people for an extended period of time is not really an option. Mm -hmm. So we tend to use it as we bridge people from being uncontrolled to either a new immunomodulator or into plastic surgery where those areas are being surgically debulked and removed. That makes sense. And I think it is important to mention it as a bridge because, you know, they will relapse without it eventually if they're not bridged to another systemic treatment, like you mentioned, too. Um, so say if I have a severe patient in front of me, I want to start erdipenem. Um, I'm sure it's dependent on the system you're working within, but do you typically send them to infectious disease to have them start it? What's kind of the process for you when you do it? So we are really lucky and we collaborate with our infectious disease division and one of their APPs is assigned to the inpatient floor to follow up on patients. And she is able and willing to just come down to our office when we give her a page. She talks to the patient and then takes over getting the PICC line inserted and setting up the home health infusions. We really also have not gotten a lot of pushback from our ID colleagues who maybe try and police the use of antibiotics. Uh, they have been really understanding of the role of this antibiotic, so we don't have to seek approvals from them ahead of time. And we have not had any questions from insurance, surprisingly enough, about why this might be necessary. Awesome. Well, it's one that I'm excited to try for some of my patients. I have a couple in mind that um, they're severely affected and some things just stop working after a while. Um, so then if you don't mind, you mentioned, you know, plastic surgery for HS, but if you're going to do uh, some of the procedures in the office, I'm just curious if you had good learning resources for our listeners on where to learn, you know, how to de-roof de lesions and um, those types of procedures. Absolutely. My mind was blown just a few years ago because I'd had this decision tree in my head that said, I do medicines, I send HS patients to surgeons if they need surgery. And then I went and visited Ilt Hamzavi uh, at Henry Ford in Detroit, and he showed me how he does these procedures. Uh, Chris Syed is another one at UNC. He does a fantastic job of making these procedures accessible to us who, if you can excise a melanoma, then you can excise HS. If you can curette a basal cell, then you can do a punch deroofing. And in between those two things are the marsupializations where we're deroofing and scraping out tunnels. 
So I think that these procedures really are very accessible. And watching a video, I think, really can be enough. Certainly watching one in person is even more useful, but I would argue absolutely not necessary. Um, okay. Having a certain degree of just comfort with your surgical prowess is probably enough. So the HS Foundation is planning to put some videos on their website. I'm wondering, but I don't know for sure if Chris Syed might have some videos that he has posted as well. Um, but I know a number of people in the HS Foundation have recorded their own surgeries just to help it be accessible to other practitioners. Awesome. So yeah, um, we'll try to get our hands on those videos and post them on our website and even in our show notes. So um, so that's really all the main questions I had for you. I really, really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this because, you know, as any dermatologist knows that's seen HS patients, they unfortunately sometimes suffer a really long time before we get them in our hands and can get them better. Uh, so I just wanted to close by asking you if you had any final words of wisdom uh, for the listeners for, you know, seeing, treating HS patients, because we may have some people that are first learning about HS by listening to this, too. So I think if I could give myself advice five or 10 years ago, it would be number one, hear them out. It's emotional. Let them be heard. But personally, I can't let it affect me too much. Use it as ammunition to want to get this disease under control. Harness it to help insurance companies help this patient. Second, have that algorithm in my head. Because I think we can all reach for stronger medicines a little bit earlier for these patients. And... We hope that insurance companies will start to hear us, especially as we have more and stronger options coming out of clinical trials in the next two years. I think the most important thing we can walk into a room with is hope because these patients deserve to feel a lot better. They want to feel a lot better. And there are many, many more things that are going to come out of this pipeline very, very soon. Yeah, and I'm really glad that there's more awareness growing about it, too. And people like yourself that are really passionate about it, you know, spending time talking to us on this podcast, uh, speaking at conferences, doing lots of research. So, um, again, I just want to thank you so much for doing this today. And, um, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thanks again for listening today. I again want to thank Dr. Kirby for spending time out of her busy schedule to talk HS with us. I also want to thank Dr. Dave Smith for taking our recording equipment to Dr. Kirby's office in the midst of a pandemic just so that we could have a high-quality recording for you all. Dave has been such a huge help over the last year or so with starting our study guides and our website, so I want to thank Dave again and I want to wish him the best as he starts his dermatology residency soon. And as always, thanks to all of you, the listeners, for tuning in. In the next episode, we'll be giving a good, thorough review on the diagnosis and management of hyperhidrosis, so I hope you join us next time here in the Grunt Zone. Have a nice rest of your day, everyone. This episode is copyright 2021 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grunt Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.